Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Watcher, um, this week's episode is, like last week's, a little different. Um, I asked a few black writers I know if they fancied letting me interview them for this show about the Black Lives Matter protests, and I rightly didn't get any response. Um, I was very ignorant of just how sick of talking about it they must be, and it was only after I stupidly sent several emails uh, that I read lots of accounts of black commentators, artists, and the like, saying how exhausted they were of explaining the same shit again and again to white people, when very little has changed in years and years of system and overt racism, not just in the US, but here in the UK too. Uh, and I realised that while it wouldn't be right for me to speak to someone who wasn't black about the issue for this show, I had actually asked many previous guests questions on racism in the UK before. So, so many times before, in fact. And it's also come up so many times on this podcast, we're not directly asking them about racism, but discussing issues of austerity, education, deprivation, poverty, the hostile environment policy, Grenfell and the Windrush scandal, to name but a few, all of which are based on or disproportionately affect uh, BAME people. Um, I thought the best thing to do this week was to go through some of those old interviews and replay select bits about the effects of racism in the UK over the last four or five years, well, or centuries really, because it's prevalent here and now too, and sadly continues to be. And it's not anti-police or far-left extremism or whatever nonsense people are posting online. If you're not anti-racist, then you're racist. If you don't believe that black lives matter, you are racist. That is straight up how it is. I don't want to patronise or overtly preach, but if you've made any effort this week to support the protest, or made tokenistic gestures on social media and thought that that was enough, bear in mind this needs fighting all of the time in all areas of society, all year round, every year till racism is stamped out, if and hopefully that can happen at some point. No, I'm not doing enough either myself, I should say. Uh, I am a hypocrite, but I hope that by reminding the handful of people that listen to this show of some of the times interviewees have talked to me about it over the last four years, it will highlight some of the insidious racism that you may be otherwise unaware of. Please do check out the full interviews uh, in previous episodes if you haven't heard them before. And first up, here is a clip of Paulina Kunda from the Memorial 2007 campaign from back in episode 143 in May of last year. The whole interview was about the campaign for a statue to remember the millions who died and were enslaved in the transatlantic slave trade. You know, the one that Edward Colston was a big murdering part of. You know, Edward Colston, the man, the statue of whom in Bristol that was taken down in the protest this week and rightly chucked into the sea. 
Uh, Pauline is still campaigning for this memorial and I've popped a link to the petition in the show blurb again. My usual shouting will kick off after. I I know nothing about the transatlantic slave trade and I feel hugely uh, em- embarrassed about it. I, I was taught nothing about it at school. I went to a very multicultural school in North London and it wasn't any part of our history, uh, you know, learning or education at any point. Um, and sort of reading about it in, in later life, it's, it's been referred to as the African Holocaust on the amount of millions of lives lost and, and the, the amount of people that were enslaved. Why is there not more awareness of it as a major part of Britain's history and uh, why is there not more remembrance of those who died? and were oppressed um what is the reason for that is it all guilt and inherent racism and ignorance what's why why is that happening the main thing is it's racism and it's the fact that it's systemic and it's kind of legitimized and embedded in the way our society runs and like um you know it really benefits white people at the hierarchy of this system and then for those of us, people of colour and black people, we are othered. And this comes out through the way in which we learn our own history or we learn about the transatlantic slave trade. When I learned about it, I was in year nine. We did two weeks and my teacher um, told us to all go down underneath the table. So the whole classroom was underneath the table and he shook it. And that was, you know, the experience of the slaves. And our homework was to write a diary entry as though you were a slave who had um, been taken onto the ships and into slavery. And only, I think, three years ago, I remembered and I was just thinking, oh, my God, this is horrific. Um, Like, what? (laughs) And like, this is this is so bad. And um, I then realized that it's kind of Britain doesn't want to ever look bad in its history. It's an uncomfortable truth to kind of learn about the entirety of the legacy of slavery and what that benefited for Britain and how that has really helped. Yeah, I mean, I guess we we never want to be the bad guys, do we? It's in a, you know, Britain always pretends it's the good guys in in every situation and any bit of history that might prove that otherwise. Even though there's loads of bits of history that prove it otherwise, <laughs> but that gets so hidden. Honestly, and in a way, it's kind of when it's kind of the transatlantic slave trade was when the ideology of racial inferiority began, and it was then reinforced by the eugenics movement. And having to deal with that kind of, I don't know, I find it's kind of too lazy to say that it's kind of just guilt or ignorance because it's legitimized, it's erased. They don't, we aren't really represented in history. Um, and the people at the center of the transatlantic slave trade, you know, the 20 to 30 million lives lost, their stories aren't told. When we do hear about the transatlantic slave trade, we hear about Britain's abolishment of the Slavery Act, but then we don't hear about the compensation to the slave owners. Um, you know, we hear about the white abolitionists, but we don't know about Olauda Equiana. But, you know, we don't hear about um, how we, how black people at the center of the story also work to free themselves to kind of, how do I express, to kind of tell their own stories. Yeah, I suppose it's that similar thing of uh, like in the recent uh, Oscars scandal of Green Book doing very well, but it was all about the white person being the saviour of the black person rather than it being rather than sort of showing the kind of black people's achievements themselves. It's become so normalised for, for, I guess, white supremacy has has become so normalised in the sense that history has become whitewashed and is retold and it's then wrong, it's misinformed. You know, that's why when David Lammy made comments about the white saviour trope and why it's damaging and it isn't helpful for Africans and comic relief need to change the way that they're trying to support 
and how it turned into an argument that they framed it as though that he was attacking Stacey Dooley and her intentions instead of really talking about the root of it, which is the consequences of what racism does. And that's erasing history and then misinforming. And it is an injustice to British people and society as well, because we need to tell um, history in its entirety in order to learn from it instead of completely kind of repeating things that I can't believe the Green Book, you know, it was there, it's in the Oscars and it's surprising, but it's it's stopped being shocking. It's kind of just things are being repeated and the people at the center of the stories aren't given the platforms to tell those stories. And if we are given the platforms to tell that story, it becomes, a, you know, a, an ethnic movie, a story on oppression and struggle or a, or a new or controversial outlook, when in reality it's just a way to look at things that isn't white-centred or isn't made for kind of um, white ignorance to be shielded and made comfortable or, you know, white guilt not to be made, not to be felt by those who benefit and privilege from it and instead to be made to feel as though that they're the ones who are also doing the kind of work of making the world a better place. Sure, sure. I mean, and, and, and I want to I want to ask you more about the the sort of uh, the importance of the history of the transatlantic slave trade. But is there's also um, there must be a great importance about informing children about this period. Just you know, how how does it affect children if their school education doesn't include their ancestors' stories? Like, how does that affect kids if they are learning about the pasts of others but they're never kind of included in it? What does that do, does that affect the way that you grow up and the way you learn about things? That must have an impact. Completely, completely um, beautiful quote by Professor Gustron um, kind of illustrates this when he said, if children are not encouraged to develop a sense of history, they cannot develop an appreciation of how they can empower themselves to make a difference, to contribute to society to the fullness of their potential and to claim their own place in history. As people of colour in Britain, we don't grow up feeling British. We don't grow up feeling that we have a right or a space to take up space in Britain and we don't learn about um, and not learning about ourselves the way it's taught isn't accessible and it's not fair and it you know it really shows why so many children of colour kind of it's part of the reasons you know it makes up part of the reason why children of colour don't necessarily do that well in school or feel welcomed at school because the curriculum does not include their narrative like their stories and their narratives and their existence in our society, we don't, it's kind of legitimizing the erasure and omission of our histories in the narrative. It makes us feel displaced. I mean, for me, I came to the UK when I was eight and people were surprised I spoke English, even though English is a national language in Uganda. Yeah, everyone speaks it better than English people do. We One day we've got to realize this. <laughs> Honestly, and you know, people still think that Africa is a country and oh, still think that, you know, we're in huts. And there is a reason for that. And it's because we're not being told history and we're not being taught about the world in a holistic way that is including the realities of how we... It's still the same way of kind of presenting, you know, British history or Western history as this modern advancement of culture, religion, science. And whereas we're still spoken about in this pitying way of, um, you know, in this way that our societies are still primitive or, you know, we're still, the idea of primitive even is inherently racist. But I mean, going back in terms of like Black, British and 
people of British people of color, it means that we don't feel comfortable in it. It took me. It's taken me up, and it took me up until I was 21 to kind of see that my identity was British. You know, it wasn't just. I could now. I can now. You know, answer the question of where are you from with pride and say I'm from Britain. You know, and like not feel like as if I'm not really or it's not a thing. But that shouldn't be the case. It should be something that everyone learns from from a young age from primary school because it's not that Black history is just black history or it's a separate history no it's all of our history it's british history it's just as important it's not a sideline or an option it's a reflection of the society that we are living in today hello and welcome to the partly political broadcast the comedy politics podcast that i promise contains absolutely no bad apples at all just me being a bit of a cox I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, as Prime Minister and the man that embraces all definitions of the word lumpen at once, Boris Johnson, says that protesters deemed to have threatened the police will be held to account. I wouldn't worry, as he has absolutely no idea what that means, so I think you'll all be fine. Johnson urged for people to act peacefully and lawfully to tackle racism and discrimination wherever we find it, so if anyone could let me know where I can peacefully and lawfully report him for his 2004 novel and all his newspaper articles, please do let me know. As hundreds and thousands of people took to the streets to support Black Lives Matter all across the UK and the world, many Conservative MPs showed that they're actually more interested in the lives of statues, presumably because they feel a kindred spirit to anything that also has a heart of stone. Protesters in Bristol removed the statue of slave trader and murderer Edward Colston before dumping it into the sea, a frankly long overdue event and an apt conclusion to the memory of a man whose actions single-handedly led to the deaths of over 19,000 African and Afro-Caribbean people in the 1800s. But so many leapt to the defence of the statue, despite years and years of them never once campaigning against pigeons. Former Home Secretary and constant new potato Sajid Javid said that it was not okay and if Bristolians want to remove a statue they have to do it democratically, you know, unlike Javid who deported many people on planes to Jamaica without even checking if they'd done anything wrong. Current Home Secretary and walking paper cut Pretty Patel said that the action distracts from the cause people are protesting about, which I mean it doesn't because the cause is fighting racism and having the oppressive symbol commemorating a man that looked over Bristol just cemented the ingrained racism within our history. If the protesters had, I don't know, removed and dumped one of the big M&Ms from outside M&M world into the sea, then maybe she'd have a point. Well, unless it was the green one because, I mean, we all know what his deal is. If anyone knows about distracting from important issues, though, it's Patel, whose airport quarantining policy has only come in this week, over three months since the pandemic actually began. I do wonder if the only reason people coming from countries with a smaller R rate than ours have to provide an address for self-isolation is so Patel can personally go round and shout go home at them, knowing they'll be in. Conservative MP and unfinished clone of Al Murray, Ben Bradley, said that if we start to judge historical figures by 21st century standards, we'll find that quite a few folks were nice, almost as if they didn't know any better. Yes, Ben, because you know, in the 1800s when Edward Colston was still alive, no one had a clue that killing masses of people and enslaving others was a bad thing, did they? It was just what you did on a Saturday afternoon before throwing your urine into the streets, right Ben? He was just having a laugh. I await Ben Bradley's campaign for more Hitler statues everywhere, because sure, by 21st century standards, he was a horrific dictator, but back then he was probably just having a giggle, right? You know, a muck about with pals. It speaks volumes that as a movement surges across the Western world to abolish the prejudice that has been rife for centuries, the right wing are more concerned with unwanted tributes to arseholes who've been long dead, but then that is exactly who they get most of their donations from, so I guess you have to keep supporters on side. 
At the London protests on Sunday, graffiti was sprayed on the statue of Winston Churchill in Parliament Square, adding, was a racist under his name, prompting a number of fascist groups to get unironically angry, clearly unaware that while Churchill was a racist, he was also the sort of racist that would have fought racists like them. Bit like a gang of bacterial infections weeping over some spilled penicillin. Before that, it was Horse Lives Matter as a mounted police officer's steed bolted at the protests on Saturday, causing the rider to be knocked off by a traffic light, the colour of which is unknown, otherwise we could determine which of either the horse or person was correct to stay or go. The officer is now fine, as is the horse apparently, but blame has been attributed by the police government and much of the press at the protesters who supposedly threw bikes at the Mounties, though the footage shows just one bike wheeled not very quickly, which wouldn't have been a threat due to lack of horsepower. The question should really be, why were there mounted police at a peaceful protest and why do we have mounted police at all when it's 2020 and they should probably be all on those wanky hipster electric scooters by now? And why is it always horses, whether police or racing, that the ruling class care about more than lives of people? Is it because private schools get them into grooming? Or is it that they like a creature that can be saddled with shit politicians and not complain once? More importantly, are traffic lights now allies of progressiveness, stopping police attacks and choosing to give equal time to all colours? Many have asked questions as to why Black Lives Matter is needed in the UK, when in comparison the US has had police do the exact opposite of their job, with most detective murder shows now requiring the lead role to check the mirror first and then arrest themselves. The president and vocal peptic ulcer, Donald Trump, spent part of the week hiding in the White House Führer bunker while cops tear gas protesters outside, who really didn't need that as they were definitely upset enough already. This was just so Trump could safely cross the road for a photo opportunity at a church, which some churchgoers have criticised, though I think based on history, there's actually nothing more classic OG Christian than using the Bible to justify oppression against black people. Later in the week, as reports showed US unemployment falling, Trump said it was a great day for George Floyd, which it wasn't because he was murdered by police. It was an incredibly sociopathic thing to say, but at the same time, maybe Trump has vague awareness that the only people who aren't having a shit time under his presidency are those that have already died. He has been talking about a military crackdown in America because nothing says calming civil unrest like chucking even more armed people in uniform onto the streets. We can only hope that within seconds of being there, the soldiers will realise the police are the insurgents and that the only way to bring actual democracy to America is to invade it. But Boris Johnson insists that Britain, on the other hand, is not a racist country, which must be awkward for him as that means he's no longer the person to represent it properly. But you only need to take all of the weekend's happenings to know that it is, though, as Health Secretary and foam shrimp Matt Hancock was either unaware or couldn't admit that there are no black people in the government's cabinet, instead saying there was diversity of thought. Sure, and nothing represents the entire public like 15 different white men called Jeremy, but with one who doesn't like eggs and another who has 12 houses instead of 11. There is the more violent side of racism here too, as shown by mounted police being brought in for peaceful protests and many people kettled for no reason at all in a situation that, while many were social distancing, physically couldn't once they'd been trapped in. Of course, the government were repeatedly telling people not to go to any protest with more than six people, which shows massive bias towards the pro-Brexit marches for Britain and EDL rallies that only ever managed to muster up the man that sits in the corner of the chippy touching himself and the guy on the beach who does karate kicks at pigeons. It's alright though, everyone, because Labour leader and boast stand Keir Starmer stood up for the protesters by saying nobody should condone the lawlessness and the statue shouldn't come down in that way. Phew! Forensic stuff there from Keir, the man who'd look at Schrodinger's cat and say it wasn't his place to say if the cat was there or not, but maybe there should be an inquiry into it. While the Foreign Secretary and Japanese mascot for dithering, Lisa Nandy, wouldn't commit to saying that Donald Trump was racist on BBC's The Mar Show, which is odd as she's very good at knowing exactly who of her colleagues in the party are and is generally happy to tell everyone. 
it's almost certain that the protests will be blamed for a second wave of coronavirus if it happens, rather than, you know, the vague instructions by the Prime Minister and his special advisor just coughing it up the country. But you know they will, which is obviously at odds to last week where they didn't want anything to do with Black Lives Matter and they were using it as the reason not to release the Public Health England report on the effects of coronavirus on BAME people, saying it was in too close proximity to the protests, which I think is code for it would be inconvenient for people to remember that we're racist right now. The report was then released without any announcement the next day, saying that black people and Bangladeshi people in particular are twice as likely to die from Covid, but then it omitted a large chunk of information that was meant to explain the effects that inequality has had on this. But much like years and years of the government's prejudicial policies, that bit was treated as invisible and left out altogether. Not that there'll be a second wave of coronavirus, of course, because as he said last Tuesday, the Prime Minister is now taking direct control of the government's handling of the coronavirus and not three months too late. It's hard to know how to take that comment, the direct control, and admittance that Johnson's only contribution to the coronavirus pandemic was telling everyone their loved ones may die and then shaking everyone's hands in a hospital just to make sure. I'm not saying he's been asleep on the job, but rumours say this week that the Prime Minister's regularly had to take three-hour sleeps during the day, which is not so much a power nap as what you have to do if your battery's dead and needs replacing. If it's been this shit without him in direct control, how much worse will it get now? And really, if he's to follow his own advice, which he never does, isn't the only way to really take control for him to leave. Is this why airport quarantining is now functional when it should have been back in March, because Johnson is only bothering to try as of now? From this week, everyone entering the UK has to self-isolate for two weeks, which, considering the current state of things, if you're thinking of a holiday, that will give you the authentic 2020 British experience. There are exemptions, depending on the work you're doing, if you need to travel there and so on, and if the government actually have any system in place to check up on you, but hey, it's the thought that counts, and much like all the thoughts they have for people who've lost loved ones to the virus, they've generally come too late to be of any actual use. The other big new but actually really old for everyone else in the world initiative is for face masks on public transport to be compulsory from next week, which will be really, really confusing and upsetting for Islamophobes. Oh, and lockdown rules say you can't have sex with people you don't live with, which is probably why Johnson now has time to actually focus on things. So it appears the general advice is just what everyone else's general advice was earlier in the year, but we've arrived so late to the party you wonder if it was worth us turning up at all. Johnson said he was very proud of the way the country's tackled coronavirus, a comment that he made on the same day the death toll hit over 40,000. But maybe that's why him and his government are really proud, because that's double what Edward Colston managed and he got a statue. It's just an odd thing to be proud of, isn't it, when it looks like track and trace won't really be working till autumn, the only benefit of which will be that by then the virus will have gone and they can just dismantle the system again, or we'll all have died from Covid and there'll only be a handful of people left to call and trace. The UK Statistics Authority have written twice to Matt Hancock saying that the government still aren't making the correct test data available, which the Health Secretary has ignored, instead just insisting that tests have been delivered to care homes on time, even though they may not actually have been taken and could have been sent by Yodel and just lobbed onto the roof or into a bin of a neighbouring building. In fact, there's less and less transparency of official figures overall, with scientific advisers being scarcely seen at the daily briefings anymore and weekend briefings no longer happening, which the government say is just due to low ratings. Though if they really want to fix that, maybe they should add in forfeits like other weekend TV, so they have to try and bullshit the statistics while being covered in tarantulas or eating a kangaroo's balls or something. Failing that, maybe just invest in some new writers and a whole new cast. Matt Hancock has made a call out for people who've had coronavirus to donate their blood and antibodies, much like he's done, as he said. And I can only pity whoever receives his, as they'd no doubt run away from the virus, but say loudly they'd done all they can and it was a very, very good job. 
The coronavirus R rate is now above one in the northwest and southwest, according to certain studies. But Hancock insists that when all studies are taken into account, you know, including any that aren't to do with coronavirus and just about how the number zero works or people's GCSE studies, then it is just closer to one. You know, in the way that 1.5 is closer to one than two is, and two is closer to one than 700 billion thousand. On the day of recording this show, the death toll is now its lowest of 55, which is very good news. But it's very hard to have any faith that it won't get worse again when the example that Parliament is setting themselves appears to be to queue up to catch coronavirus, with Tory MPs pushing in to get there first. MPs spent nearly an hour in a bizarre queue system to vote for bringing back physical voting, with several of them saying how bad this setup was before then voting for it. I suppose there's no better way to say you represent the public by putting yourself into the high-risk virus situation you've subjected them all to. To be fair, the Conservatives have issued the other British stereotypes of saying sorry, having a sense of humour, or in Boris Johnson's case, making a cup of tea properly, so it makes sense that they're putting all their energy into queuing. Which, to be fair, they're already good at pushing their friends to the front of and closing the doors before anyone else gets the chance. Leader of the House and vaudevillian Blair Witch doll, Jacob Rees-Mogg, was angry that MPs said they'd previously voted online while going for a walk and said that that is insulting to democracy, you know, unlike lying down on the front bench looking bored or unlawfully proroguing Parliament. It was clear that this system was put in place because, without the Conservatives on the backbenches, Johnson's non-answers at Prime Minister's question times can't be drowned out by the usual strange braying sounds. But it seems the plan backfired within days as Business Secretary and Minecraft avatar Alex Sharma began feeling unwell in the chamber and had to self-isolate with Covid symptoms. Sharma was tested and it came back negative, but we all know that based on the accuracy of the test that could be wrong. Luckily, should be very easy to track and trace everyone he's been in contact with, so they should probably start there. It'll be hilarious if Mogg's plan actually means all the Tories have to self-isolate for two weeks, and then Johnson has an even worse PMQs as a result. MPs with underlying health conditions who've been told to stay at home have said the insistence on physical voting is discriminatory, and the government had to U-turn on saying they had to attend, instead allowing them to vote by proxy, which means they can make any colleagues they don't like go and stand in a big old Covid queue for them. Boris Johnson is to visit all 27 EU countries in what he calls a charm offensive, though it will likely to be the second part of that with a total lack of the former. His aim is to ask EU workers to return to the UK to help the economy, you know, the one they've been told for five years they don't contribute to and steal all the jobs from. Johnson would be better off selling it as charity or aid work where EU workers could come and have pictures taken with children of small business owners who didn't qualify for any grants, or fishermen that have been let down. The EU chief negotiator and man who always looks like he's about to ask for fly fishing by J.R. Hartley, Michel Barnier, says there's been no progress in EU negotiations on account of the UK government trying to distance themselves from the joint political declaration that they themselves created and voted for. Though, to be fair, I wouldn't want to back anything they'd been involved with either. This week's rule breakers are Labour MP and man who always has a more empty diary than most actors, Barry Gardner, who broke social distancing rules to take a knee at the Black Lives Matter protests, which his colleague Lisa Nandy condemned as wrong. And she's right, he should have waited to break them while queuing to vote in Parliament first. It is nice to see an MP break those lockdown rules to protest for other people's rights though, as opposed to Tory MP and stock photo for My Wife Took Everything, Bob Seeley, who broke lockdown rules to attend a barbecue with the Brexit Party chairman and politician in a daytime Channel 5 soap, Richard Tice, and his girlfriend, journalist by title only, and person made entirely of small hate-filled triangles, Isabel Oakshot. I mean, it's one thing to go against all safety precautions to protest for justice, but to do it just to have a sausage with those cunts. I mean, fucking hell, that's like breaking out of Alcatraz just to go to an all-bar one. What a waste. 
And finally, Lord Digby Jones, a.k.a. How Did Bruno Brooks Manage to Eat Bruno Brooks, has proposed spending £100 million on a royal yacht, which he said would provide the country with the moral boost it needs. Yes, because what everyone will really get kicks out of as we head into a deep recession after thousands of people have died is to spend money we won't have on a big boat we can't go on for people who leech off the country, including a non-sweating lying paedophile who's currently wanted by the US justice system. But saying that, if we can put them on it and then never allow it to dock again, then I'm all for it, and in the long run it'll be cheaper than keeping them here. Now God knows what Andrew would get up to on international waters. And now, before the admin bit, here is a quick clip from my chat with rapper and activist Awate back in 2017. Uh, You can find Awate on Twitter at Awate Music and all his tracks, videos and articles at awate.com. I am a political subject. Like, I'm here, I'm in this country because of politics. Everything that happened before to my family's history is because of politics. Everything that happened to me in this country was was political. And because I... Uh, early on understood the context of stuff like uh, why I was getting excluded why kids were shouting racist stuff to me knowing that it was racist like I've got friends now to this day who I've lived with since I was like six you know what I mean from the same area as me who'd be like I've never had anyone say anything to me racist like I've been there when people have bruv what are you talking about but if they don't understand the context of what someone's saying or even the way some old white lady's talking to them like they're like they're dirt they wouldn't react to that as if it was racist. Do you know they talk to everyone like that? Oh yeah, oh, I didn't, I didn't know the, I didn't know that word. Then my head teacher called me a despicable specimen when I was in year seven. Jesus. In year seven, it was one of the most disgusting, racialized things I ever heard in my life. If you understand slavery, you understand black people were sold and and bought and were seen as animals. You understand that, but if you didn't understand, and I didn't at the time, it was when I told a black member of staff and my parents that they were like what do you know what I mean so I've had friends who they've been called despicable specimens by security guards by police by teachers by by just a lady on the street by a man on the street and that's happened to them but if they don't understand the context of it then no one understands Hey, hey, team, how are you coping? Uh, my agent, sorry, daughter, is currently going through a phase where she likes to tell me or my wife uh, that I don't like mummy or I don't like daddy and then tells us to go away and has a massive uh, hissy fit. I've been told six times today that she doesn't like me and I'll be honest, it's been a blessing. Uh, I've just sat upstairs working on the show, not had to do any parenting at all. Um, here I was naively thinking that all I wanted in my life was the reciprocal love of my most precious child and actually... After three months of lockdown uh, with an angry two-year-old, it's not that at all. Uh, And I hope she does it again tomorrow so I can finish reading my book. Uh, Did you go on the Black Lives Matter protest this past weekend? I really wanted to, but I'm still a bit too nervous about the old corona and what we're having diabetes and all that. Um, And that combined with the idea of dragging around a two-year-old who's just screaming about how much she hates us, uh, it just wasn't doable. Um, While I was concerned for myself, I fully appreciate and support everyone that went. And from what I saw, most people were wearing masks and keeping distance as much as they could until the police did their usual help thing of kettling them um i've only been kettled once on a protest back in 2011 can't even remember which one it was for there was quite a lot then um but i cheekily played the diabetic card and got out early which worked doesn't always work and i'm grateful i found the one policeman who believed my blood sugars were going low when they definitely weren't ha acting um it is fucking horrible though very scary too as a mounted police and generally anyone in riot gear deciding you can't have the freedom to protest anymore even though legally you do 
I'm pretty sure it's called kettling though, is all it does is increase the chances of things boiling over rather than playing out quietly. And I think the protesters this past weekend have been amazingly uh, calm, considering. Um, what I did do on Sunday, though, was watch the full two-hour virtual protest hosted by London Black Lives Matter, and it was amazing and really worth checking out if you have the time. There were so, so uh, many good speakers. Um, I'll put a link to the video of it in the podcast blurb. Do give it a watch. As you'll have noticed, uh, this week's app is a bit different. I hope it's okay to replay some old clips. Is that cheating? I don't know. Um, it's amazing how the context of the changes or actually becomes even more important and powerful considering the current everything. Um, it's weeks like this where I'd love to just fold the comedy away somewhere for a bit and just listen to clever, powerful people say brilliant, hopeful things rather than try and think up yet again how to describe Matt Hancock's stupid, stupid, oblong, oblong face. Um, but hey, you're all here and I appreciate it as always. And if you weren't, I wouldn't unfold that comedy at all or say things that ultimately in the future when my grandchildren say why is there no water anymore sorry i mean when they say granddad what did you do to help the black lives matter movement i'll be able to say i sat on my bum and your mum told me she hated me and then i said something very rude about matt hancock again because he deserved it uh, anyway, uh, thank you tons this week to somebody, somebody else, Helen, Mark, Kim, Lord Shoreham and Joanne, all of whom have very, very kindly donated to the uh, ko-fi.com forward slash bro account. And if you can chuck me a few quid for any of this weekly yelling but with words, then please do um, either at the Kofi or by joining the patreon.com forward slash bro or this new ACAST supporter thing that I haven't worked out how to do, uh, but it might be on the screen while you're listening or something. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't really worked it out. It's not working on my one yet. I'm not going to tell you how to do it anyway. I'm not your dad. You have a look. Um, if you can't donate, that is cool. I can't donate to any shows I don't have time to listen to either. So in which case, please do pop a nice review on Apple Podcasts or any of them. Or just spread the word on your socials and when you're next tucked up to MPs in the voting queue couple of very quick things this week um thing one there is a new live podcast app called ramble that will be launching soon and they've asked me if i want to try it out and i do um so on thursday 25th of june at 8 p.m i'll be giving it a go and basically any of you uh, will be able to call in and chat to me for 30 minutes about anything uh, preferably politics or comedy and i'll be able to record it and sort of put it out as a bonus podcast app um i think it might be best if i ask the questions or maybe you call in if you want to answer them or talk about them but look we'll see if it works or not and uh worst comes to worst if none of you do I'll just get to sit upstairs in my room in the quiet for 30 minutes not having to parent so that's a win um, so yeah 25th of June 8pm let's try that um, I'll tweet and Facebook all about it nearer the time as well and do it on the podcast that week too second thing uh, the kids politics show how does this politics thing work then the one that I was touring pre-pando is up online uh, for free on my own YouTube channel so youtube.com forward slash tin and do yep um, some caveats though it is a show that wasn't meant to be filmed for release just to make a trailer from and in fact we did a second show that day that was sold out and better but of course didn't film it typical isn't it sod's law um, it's also from September 2019 and the show changed loads and loads after that because well politics did too but the main structure of it is the same and so if you and your youngins fancy a watch please do head to that youtube channel and it'll be there and if you enjoy please chuck a few quid to the kofi please or whatever you think a ticket price might have been um obvs don't let your kids watch any of the other videos on my youtube channel um, or if you do um just be aware they might learn some new swears more interview clips through this week's show there's a little bit in the middle on the bame coronavirus report too but first one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, this is the first of two clips from Maurice McLeod, a journalist, former co-creator of the now sadly defunct media Diversified, which was a platform for black writers that was so very necessary but couldn't survive due to underfunding. Um, Norris is now vice chair for Race on the Agenda, which is a social policy research organisation focusing on issues that affect BAME communities. And here he is from way back in this podcast history, like back in 2016, um, discussing how none of the main political parties then were standing up for black people. So it's nice to see everything's changed now, huh? Uh, uh, Morris is on Twitter at MoWords. For, for me to diversify, I, I produce a, um, myself and a colleague produce a, a weekly column called White Men Dancing. And, and what that is, is that politics really is just, to, to some people it is like, it's just, it's just these weird people kind of doing something weird that's not connected to them and looks a bit odd. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like white men dancing. Sorry. That's all right. You might be a great dancer. I'm sorry. I don't, I just mean, uh, <laughs> it's entirely fair. It's entirely fair. I, I won't comment on my dancing. Let's just... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but what, but what I mean, but, but certainly um, in terms of parties, um, since, since, since the growth of UKIP, I think UKIP have managed to harness a buzz that was there they've managed to grasp and legitimise some pretty ugly thoughts and that's not saying that everyone that supports UKIP is, is a racist or anything like that I'm not at all saying that but if you do have those thoughts suddenly there's a party that doesn't sound that different to the things you say and is putting up posters that, that, that you can tweet and, and, and not get lambasted for and you know suddenly that's the case and it, it, it certainly dragged the Conservative Party to the right and encourage them to have this referendum, for instance. But also, it's put a lot of pressure on the supposed left-wing parties. So, as you know, all the time in the world for Jeremy Corbyn, I think he's, I think he's great. Um, I think he's under a lot of pressure. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the... I, mean, I went to my local Labour Party for the first time in, in ages, and the debate, really weirdly, was um, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't understand how... The, this is in Tooting, in South London, where I live. Right. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't understand that in the north of England, working-class people, they just don't like my and he's been too soft on migrants and we as a party you know we need to understand that migration is a really big problem and instead of sort of saying you know what we need to have a different narrative we need to really be promoting the the thing that's great about britain is that it is you know a nation of migrants that we've that we've always had people from all over the world and this is what's wonderful about us that's why 
That's why we can produce grime and you know and, and whatever else you know the, you know, the stuff that, that Britain can do. Not many other countries in the world can, mm. and it's because of this constant influx of people bringing their selves and their talents and their cultures. This is what, you know, and I don't really hear any parties saying that. And and what I fear post Brexit is that that even the Labour Party, if 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 the sort of rebels manage to do what they're trying to do and, and get rid of Corbyn, that the Labour Party will drift in that direction as well. And then then it's you know you're almost left with well who is speaking for who is speaking for for the minorities um and 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 what you end up with is with people just going well politics it's just not for me it's a bunch of white men dancing forget it the Public Health England report into disparities in the risk and outcomes of COVID-19 was released last week, after the government said it would be delayed because they were worried by global events. Which is not a thing to say when global events were highlighting prejudice. I mean, sure, if the global events were that lots of people's eyes were going on fire from looking at reports, then damn, hold that report back. Otherwise, you know, it just really makes everyone take notice and go, oh, is the report going to say that you've neglected vast areas of society that we knew you neglected, but now it's in writing? And it does say that, but not as much of it as it should say. And actually, what was released the next day without any sort of notice, hoping that maybe no one would ask about it ever again, you know, like that report into Russian interference that no one's bothered with anymore, what was released was all a bit vague. I should also say that it wasn't just a review into the coronavirus effects on BAME people, but a review on the overall disparities of coronavirus, with evidence that it's men who make up for 60% of deaths, and especially men over 60, with people over 80 being 70 times more likely to die than 40-year-olds, just like, you know everything else in life. Working age men are twice as likely to die than working age women and children under 15 are basically fine and will own everything when this is all over and good luck to them I say good luck. There's also a big bit on the geography of the virus which shows that the southeast, northwest and London were hit the most but really all areas have had a pretty shitty time. The northeast has had the least deaths so far probably because the virus saw big market on a Friday and thought holy shit I can't compete with that. The section on deprivation shows that the least deprived areas peaked earlier and lower than other groups, probably because there's less flat sharing and less overcrowded spaces when you have a whole mansion to self-isolate in. Of course, the most deprived areas had more than double the mortality rates in comparison for probably the exact opposite reason. And then there is the section on ethnicity, and it's odd because of bits such as this sentence, which I'll just quote verbatim. People of Chinese, Indian, Pakistani, other Asian, Caribbean and other black ethnicity had between 10% and 50% higher risk of death when compared to white British. And that's the sort of sentence that I used to write in essays at university when I just couldn't be bothered to list everything properly. I mean, that's quite a lot of different groups, isn't it? With quite a lot of differences between them and a 40% disparity between risk factors. So it's not particularly helpful to sort of lump them all in together, though that does fit with most of the Conservatives' attitudes towards ethnic minorities. Bangladeshi people have twice the risk that white British people do, and the highest diagnosis rates were in the black ethnic groups. This is apparently the opposite to previous pandemics that have often affected these groups a lot less, which means this virus has changed, in my estimation, from being a socialist leader, albeit a very violent one who only tackled baby boomers, to one that absolutely does discriminate despite sliding in like it was all equal ups at the beginning. Typical. Why do these things always let you down? As it states, this virus disproportionately affects black and ethnic minority groups, but when age, sex, obesity and existing health issues are taken into account, they couldn't actually find any difference in the likelihood of people in different ethnic groups having to go to ICU or dying from COVID-19. So why are so many more black and Bangladeshi people dying? Well, the report dedicates one whole paragraph out of 89 pages to saying that Bain people are more likely to live in overcrowded households in urban areas, in deprived areas and have jobs that expose them to higher risk. Also that they may be born in countries other than the UK, which means they have barriers to accessing services that they might need. 
And then it doesn't really say what should be done to change any of that or protect people from that. Not even, hey, maybe everyone should move to the northeast. It doesn't definitely doesn't say that bit. Don't do that bit. I made that bit up. And so, as a result, there have been a number of calls for Public Health England to publish the full details, with Muslim Council of Britain, the Runnymede Trust and the British Medical Association saying that it's been censored and was meant to contain quite an awful lot more. You can paint a picture of what it should have said by looking at the occupation section, for example, that lists all the frontline workers' jobs that have had the most positive COVID diagnoses. Many of them are jobs that are predominantly BAME people who have to work ridiculous hours on really shit zero-hour contracts. I didn't say it was a nice picture that you'd want to put up anywhere. It's more a sort of sad one you'd hide, like a Mark Rothko print I bought years ago that six different friends had actually looked like an offensive symbol. So now it's in a cupboard. You can also link everything to the section on deprived areas too and the latest section on care homes as well. But what the report doesn't say is that people of African origin in the UK are at higher risk than people in Africa, which has a much lower death rate overall than the UK. And that's, of course, for a number of reasons, including a much younger demographic. And as we know, the virus is one of the only things in the world that actively supports the youth. But what it does say is that the reasons for high rates in the UK are social ones, not ethno-specific. The BMA have said that data that's needed isn't being shared properly, the risk assessments aren't being correctly done, and a number of BAME organisations have said consultations that they've had with Public Health England when they were putting together this report have been completely omitted. The Conservatives have also refused to speak to any press about why that's the case. So I suppose the reason why they didn't want to release the report is because what's in it is brutal, but what they've left out shows that to the government, black lives really don't matter much at all. Such a shame people noticed, eh? Such a shame. This clip is from episode 150 in July last year when I spoke to Katrina French at Stopwatch UK, who are an amazing independent organisation fighting for fair and accountable policing. Uh, if you didn't hear it at the time, please do go back and listen to the full interview. Uh, Stopwatch UK can be found at stop-watch.org and on Twitter at Stopwatch UK. Yeah, because that's got to cause distrust. I mean, it happened to some of my mates at school. I went to school in North London and uh, some of my mates were, were stopped and uh, had a, a quite a nasty encounter with some police that stopped to search them. And they, they were never able to trust the police ever again. You know, they've never, they've never been able to since. And, uh, you know, that, 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 can't be, that can't be very helpful for anyone if that kind of distrust breeds from that. Exactly. And I think that distrust, so the distrust then breeds discontent but also it means that if you are a victim of a crime you may not want to tell the police so because well why would I tell the police or they're not going to believe me and I think that also goes back to if we look at when Stephen Lawrence was murdered and how the police treated Dwayne Brooks at the scene and thought that he may have been a suspect in potentially the murder is that people were like well why would I go to the people who don't trust me anyway so the first thing is you wouldn't go and get help um, and the second thing is, is if you knew maybe somebody who committed a crime or had information about a crime you wouldn't want to share it because you don't have any trust in the system so this the, the negative search, stop and search encounter has ripple effects that go much beyond the actual encounter in that individual has a real impact on society how people feel um in society whether they're you know valued whether they're seen as upstanding citizens and then whether they want to, you know, engage with with the state. And I, I think you're quite right in highlighting some of those lived experiences of friends, you know, which is people never regain the trust or never, yeah, the police never regain the trust of the community. And I think that's why we're in this kind of where we are around some of the nice and serious, or well, say nice crime, but serious youth violence is many of these young people will have negative perceptions of the police and it's because of their lived experience around the police. So when they may be involved in small altercations, they won't call the police for help. 
Um, and this means ultimately there's either going to be vigilantism or victimism. you're going to be victimised, um, kind of take your pick, and neither of which Stopwatch condones, but I think there's an understanding as to how the situation and why the situation the way it is, and it's not kind of condoning it or justifying it, but I think giving some context to why people wouldn't just call the police if they saw someone with a knife. Although we did have a young man um, uh, who's on the gang matrix, which is um, a police database, and he had um, stopped carrying a knife. He had been caught with a knife at about, I think, 14, 13. He stopped carrying a knife after being caught with one. And then about three years later, another young man came to his estate, and that young man came with a knife to harm him. He called the police, right thing to do. The police came to the estate. It just so happens they both must have been in like a grey tracksuit. So the police stopped him and said, we've had a call that there's someone, you know, with a knife. So he understood that he called the police. It was really funny. He had called the police. But he was trying to say to the police, I called you, like, it's not me. The guy's over there. But then a big crowd came around the police stopping him. And he ended up getting arrested for wasting police time. Oh, no, that's awful. That's really awful. Um, and I... That's really bad, but I share that story because he used to carry a knife. He stopped carrying a knife. He now calls the service that's meant to protect him. They come along, and fair enough, he was in the same clothes as the other person, but he said they didn't seem to understand or want to care to understand why he had called them. And when he was trying to mouth to them, because this crowd came around, so he couldn't say that's the guy with the knife because he didn't want to be seen to be a snitch. So when they said we're arresting you, he just, okay and went off to the police station and was arrested oh that's really depressing that's so depressing i mean sorry no no, no no don't be sorry it's, it's a real you know it's a real thing that happened it's, it's important that, that people hear those stories i mean it, it's sort of interesting though that that you know because um i wanted to ask you about if there are kind of alternatives to stop and search but it, it's it's more than just an alternative stop and search isn't it it's, it's the overall attitude that means that you know dispro- disproportionately young black men are not being trusted by the police and there's a you know and being targeted by them there's it's a whole sort of systematic change that, that's needed i assume Yes, it is. So our recent report, the Colour of Injustice, Race, Drugs and Law Enforcement, which was um, a joint report with LSE, um, School of Economics and Relief, um, main author was Dr. Michael Shiner, highlighted exactly this thing about stop and search, not being the kind of individual officers having bias, but there is something more systemic in the system. So one of the things the report highlighted was that you're more likely to be stopped and searched if you're black and in a social, economic, like, deprived area. And this is because black people um, and people from ethnic backgrounds tend to live in more deprived areas. Um, So you're more likely to be stopped there, not because you're black necessarily, but because you're in this area where it's more deprived. And policing is proactive. So police officers are often coming to your state or to your area because there's a lot of trouble. So you're more likely to be engaging with the police just by default of your geography and, you know, kind of the environment you're born into. What surprising we found, though, was that rates of dis- disproportionality were high in affluent areas such as Kensington and Chelsea. And one of the reasons, I suppose, we put forward was that you're not meant to be in those areas if you're black or brown, essentially, because affluence is not congruent with um, being black or brown. So when you are spotted in those places, police officers think, what are you doing here? And do you have suspicion? So... um it's as though, you know, your blackness, whether you're in a poor area or a white area it, or an affluent area, doesn't really matter because you're 
blackness is, is going to stand out. And at the moment, in our in the report, it was you were eight to nine times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're a um, black male. And I say male because we see you know, boys as, as young as eight being stopped and searched, um, black boys. Um, I don't really see white boys of eight years old being stopped and searched um, in the data that I receive. So there's definitely a dis- disparity, but also in terms of the age, it's as though young black boys can't be innocent and they've always got to be up to no good. Um, and it's really a negative perception I think the police have of them, but not just the police. I'll be clear, the police are just people from society who do a job. So I think we need to also zoom out and understand um, whilst we focus on policing, there's a wider conversation for society to have about race, institutional racism, um, how services are used, how services are designed. Um, we just had recently, you know, the Victoria Leadership Contest, which minus two, I believe, um, two of the candidates admitted to drug use. Mine, two didn't, and the rest did. If I asked them if it had been stopped and searched, probably be laughed at. Um, do you see what I mean in terms of the the, the, the double standard, the, the injustice, the unfairness? And then people will say, oh, but you've got, not me, but people have got a chip on their shoulder. They haven't got a chip on their shoulder. They just see the differential treatment and it's paining um, to, to live that day in and day out. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's hugely double standards that they can get away with saying they've taken drugs and have absolutely no consequences whatsoever when it can entirely damage someone else's life and, and career. And, uh, you know, I think that was sort of... But not, oh, sorry, come But not even just taking them, calling for more stop and search. That's the bit that I'm... You know, you're taking the drugs, fine, but now you're actually calling for more stop and search and you know that you won't be impacted at all by this policing power and that the policing power is going to impact, you know, usually black and brown men, and I have to say gypsy traveller people as well, are, are impacted by stop and search. Mainly vehicle stops a lot, but they're another um, ethnic minority community that are demonised or persecuted with this policing. And do you think, because I mean, as you pointed out, it's kind of uh, endemic in our political system. I mean, we saw that with the Windrush scandal, that there were people who are British citizens being told that they're not anymore because they're not white and, and that's sort of been decided by the government, you know. And, um, I, I mean, you mentioned earlier there have been recent changes to the guidance around stop and search. Have you got any hope that there's change in the system? Have you seen anything where any of the, the guidance around stop and search powers are, you know, hopeful? Oh, no, they're, they're, they're alarming. Very disappointed with the Home Secretary's approach. Um, we know that stop and search is not an effective um, I don't say tool, an effective power, because power can be misused and abused. When you say tool, it really downplays the, the impact that you know your actions can have. So when he said, when Father Javis said that he would be relaxing the Section 60 authorisation, um, which in April, and section, for your listeners, Section 60 is when the police believe that um, imminent violence may occur. And um, as they believe it's going to occur, they're going to put a blanket stop and search in for a whole area and that means that they don't need reasonable suspicion to stop you so anybody let's just give the example of Westminster in the Westminster area can be stopped and searched if there's a section 60 in place even if they have not demonstrated or been observed doing anything wrong and we think that actually this is really alarming because it doesn't require an officer to use individual grounds 
and it means that it's very arbitrary in terms of who's being stopped. You stop anyone, and it's mainly young black males being stopped, and the argument the police give, which is foolishness, is young black males are doing the crime, so we need to stop young black males. Um, the Met Police already said in a briefing last month that ethnicity, there was no correlation to ethnicity and knife crime, yet young black males are still being stopped in vast numbers compared to their white counterparts and Asian counterparts too. So having a look at how Section 60 is being used, we're concerned that it's going to be a dragnet effect where anybody who the police don't like the look of or think look a bit dodgy or suspicious are going to be caught up and searched. And people say, oh, that doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because if you haven't done anything wrong, you've not been observed doing anything wrong or the police don't have any intelligence that you've done anything wrong, why should you be subject to intrusion from the state? Um, and if they're looking for weapons and guns and say, you know, you're on your way to your mate's house and you've got a little bit of weed in your pocket, you now are going to be pulled into the criminal justice system, not because you're a violent offender, but because you've got weed. And it's not that now we're here condoning cannabis use or drug use, but it's highlighting that the unintended consequences of things, which is you stopped me because you thought I had a knife. Now I have a small amount of drugs. Yes, it's illegal. I'm getting pulled into the criminal justice system when white people who may have much stronger drugs on them are not being stopped in that Section 60 because of the perception they're not the people carrying weapons, although they may be carrying other prohibited articles. So they're just able to kind of go freely and move around freely without any of that suspicion. And it's, it's damaging. Also, it will increase um, the ethnic disparities because of personal bias and how the power is being used. So the Home Secretary, this is not an evidence-based move. It's not, you know, seeking research because we had the College of Police and the Home Office both publish reports in, I believe, 2016 and 2017 saying that stop and search is not effective at all for knife crime and does not reduce, you know, violence. So if that's coming from those statutory bodies or, you know, know, policy-making bodies, it's so that was the brilliant Katrina and this is from a chat earlier this year with writer and research analyst Laurie Montpellat who uh, at the time worked at the Runnymede Trust where they had just released a report into who the working class are in the UK in 2020. Uh, do check out the Runnymede Trust who do a lot of work to tackle racism within institutions at runnymedetrust.org. That's really fascinating, and I think if if that is you know if if you are we are classing that as working class in 2020, a lot more people would be working class than they might realise. Because I mean, you know, it's sort of in in today's day and age where where benefits are much harder to access, people with disabilities are now or you know would automatically be working class. I know a lot of people that have not got a safety net anymore and are struggling to pay rent or you know constantly on the edge of that. So does that do you think now working class kind of covers a much wider group than? we might realize yeah i think i think that may definitely be true um i think working class at the end of the day it's it's a label it's a tool to help us understand reality and to help us understand the challenges that that people may may be facing right now um and in that sense especially after 10 years of austerity where basically government has put a big strain on the resources that so many of us just need to go by in life Many more people have been robbed from that safety net. Um, it means there's there's no longer enough housing to allow you to to have that flat. Although you're like you know you know you're on a teaching assistant salary and you basically can't afford to live in this neighborhood that you've lived in all your life, 
or um, yeah, it's people facing now that precariousness because there has been cuts um, on their disability benefits or it's people having now to rely on food banks because they were relying on some form of support that's no longer available. But it's also like, you know, things like kids um, no longer having access to that community center um, because it closed down down the road and they don't live in the kind of family that can just pay for them to go do tennis or whatever. Um, and all of that, all of that means it's, 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 a, it's a stretch. It's um, a restraint onto like the space that people have to simply be and live their lives and try and, um, and basically try and, and thrive and think about what it is that they want for themselves. It's, yeah, I think it's a really good way to put it just like that absence of a safety net when you don't come from a background that gives you that safety net. And in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's less important to, to know who is working class and who isn't, then it is important to look at um, what are these injustices that we are all, um, that we're all facing and that so many of us are seeing, you know, like shaping our lives and shaping what we have, what we, what we think we should have access to that we in fact don't have access to anymore. And I mean, what's fascinating about that is a lot of the political conversation lately or political narrative has been about reaching the white working class. And as you mentioned, there was a sort of stereotypical idea of they're often in the North and, you know, they're often a certain work for a building firm or whatever. Um, but, you know, as you've mentioned, it's about lack of safety and that affects an awful lot of people. So is there any reasonable basis for kind of making race and class separate issues, um, you know, or, or kind of separating class into racial groups and what effects does it have when the kind of narrative around class is racialized like that i think there are several dangers around the idea of a white working class narrative um and the main issue with it is that it fuels division between groups who would otherwise have actually a lot in common in terms of their interest and where they're positioned in relation to the establishments um and so as i was saying we have we have that caricature of during the election, we're talking about the idea of a workington man. Um, so very exclusionary definition of what working class is in a sense. And what's, what is happening with that, with that caricature, um, I think to understand what's, what's going on with it, we can even look back at, at Brexit and how the conversation around that working class, that white working class figure started growing uh, more and more around the referendum campaign and how it was used um, by, by, by the right and the far right um, as well, but also sometimes used also on the left. Um, and it was the idea that we had forgotten a specific part of Britain um, that we then that we then labeled um, the white working class and that, that that constituency needed to be placed as the primary deserving constituency of political attention. Now, um, I absolutely believe that there are there are inequalities um, in the UK and that there are parts of the country that have definitely been held back um, in terms of just because of how resources have been spent. And that's definitely an, injust an injustice that needs to be addressed, especially like, you know, you don't have the same opportunities if you live in London and, and if you don't, um, just because of, you know, how how much resources are like concentrated in this place. Um, but what's happened with that is that we then had a government, um, and Theresa May's government basically, um, after that referendum that was able to say things like, we want to prioritize, um, we want to prioritize 
working families and you know people working around the clock and people struggling um, to make ends meet. And at the same time, you had that same government who could say things like, we want to make uh, Britain a really hostile environment for immigrants. Um, and I think we need to think about two other moments in our public debate to unpick what's going on with that statement. And with these statements, in a way, um, we have to think about Grenfell, um, what happened in June um, 2017, the tragedy of the Grenfell Tower fire and people who lost their life basically because of a system placing um, saving resources over the importance of centering uh, people's dignity and people's rights to safety. Um, and are these people, you know, the working families that Theresa May was, was addressing in that speech that she did as, as, a, as, as a prime minister in June? And at the same time, we've had over these same years, we've had Windrush as well. Um, many of these people have been working what you would call working class jobs um, for many, many years before basically being put on planes and removed from this country, um, which is again, an, another horrific tragedy. Are these people not the working families that Theresa May um, was, was addressing, you know, when, and, and all political parties really, when, when they talk about um, the need to, to prioritize the working class, and especially when it's framed as being the white working class. And I think what it does is, is that it, it creates this idea that there's a specific, a specific pocket of working class that's more deserving than the other ones. Um, and what that does is that it justifies policies that make all groups worse off. So by being able to say that there's a particular group that deserves to be treated better, you can then justify policies that cut support across the board. Um, and that's what we've had with austerity, in a sense, um, to have austerity. And if we look back to um, the government we had under Thatcher, even um, the idea that, you know, everyone had to aspire to be middle class now and everyone could pull themselves up by the bootstrap and all the demonization of being working class that that happened in, in that in that period. All of that served a purpose. It served the purpose of putting in place these policies that were going to cut the safety net. Um, and it was the attack on social housing. It was the attack on unions. Without that discourse, you couldn't put in place these policies. And I think what we have today is very similar in a sense. Um, we have this discourse um, that celebrates an exclusionary working class, um, often around that caricature that I've described, so that we can keep justifying policies that in fact cut support for the people who don't have the privilege of that family safety net, of coming from money, of, of, of coming from a, from a comfortable um, background. And, and I think that's, that's what's really scary about it, um, really. And, and that's what it's harmful for all of us, whether, you know, you, you identify as a working class person who is white or you work in class um, and you're a person of color. Um, it's very scary that, that politicians would want to prioritize, you know, a specific subgroup um, because we know what purpose it serves. And then obviously what it does as well is that it justifies discrimination and, and ongoing racism towards uh, minorities and the idea that their class, the kind of class injustice that they face, is not um, is not as important and is not as legitimate to take into account, which is obviously just um, yeah false, untrue, and violent. Um, and it recreates this idea that you know if certain people um, are facing injustices, uh, it's 
and and they aren't you know the white working class then you know it's this idea that they're just less deserving uh, than these other people and again like there is there is a very long a long tradition of of violence um when when we make a specific group that is facing disadvantage more deserving than others um often to basically yeah, justify justify policies that make it worse for all of us and that's all for this week's partly political broadcast podcast but for all of you who listened all the way through it is time for the hot politics gossip facts uh, incredible political gossip facts that you will otherwise have not known probably because they're not true uh, as the statue of murdering slave trader was pulled down in bristol during the black lives matter protest this weekend and thrown into the sea i thought i'd ask do you know what the best removal of a racist political statue was before that. Uh, No, it wasn't the long overdue removal of the imperialist white supremacist Cecil Rhodes statue from the University of Cape Town. As well, that was brilliant. Oxford Uni over here decided to keep theirs, you know, just to remind any Bullingdon Club members of their values. Uh, No, it's not the Confederate General Robert E. Lee being removed from Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, which was also removed years after it should have been. Uh, No, actually, the best removal of a racist political statue was Theresa May's forced resignation last year. So, uh... Sadly, she was replaced with an even worse unsculpted lump of idiot clay. But you win some, you lose some. More Hot Pole Cost Facts next time. Hopefully you enjoyed that one so much you'll want to subscribe to the show and listen to every episode of this podcast, telling everyone you know to tune in, even the ones who don't know what a podcast is. Just snatch their phone and add it and hit Mark All Is Played. As honestly, I won't ever know. I'll never ask. I won't know. If you can give the show a review on any of them pod apps, please, please do. And if you can, chuck us a few quid to the Kofi Patreon or Acast support thing that still won't show up on mine, so who knows if it actually works. Thanks tons to Acast, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day and Mushy Bees. And this will be back next week when Boris Johnson says that, OK, he'll now take proper, proper direct total control of the coronavirus situation before disappearing for four months, releasing only one Telegraph piece about the Black Lives Matter protests, where he manages to include six colonial names of African countries and four derogatory terms while asking everyone to fight for equality. Oh, wait, wait, before I go, here's a final clip from my chat with Morris McLeod. Um... I've got two clips from our chat because it hit me hard when listening back to it that we spoke four years ago now and so, so little has changed and it needs to. Um, I feel like this protest is bigger than anything before. Um, It feels like there's desire to learn and change from many white people and that the world is paying attention now. We can but hope. Um, Solidarity with all protesting for equality and have a little listen to this back from 2016 and feel a bit sad that... uh, it's all the same again. I think there's always been pretty close links between uh, the, the black community here and the black community in the US. So let, let's face it, the United States, because of its uh, cultural dominance, because of you know Hollywood and hip-hop and, and you know, Hollywood and music, mm. has always had a big reach across all races. But black communities in Britain uh, have, always, have always had a, had a link had, and had an interest in the US and had and been aware of, you know, the, the killings and the, and the various incidents that have been going on there, you know, from Rodney King to, to Tamir Rice to, to, to Tra- Trayvon Martin. These, these things, these, these are names that not just black people, but people that are, people that are activists know about in Britain, always have known about. Um, so, so it's no surprise to me that there's a, uh, there's a march going on right now, I believe in, in Brixton, there was a march yesterday in Westland. I think there's another one. It's Oxford Street, I think it's where, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, showing solidarity with, with the awful, awful things that are going on in the in, in the United States. I will say that that it does sometimes feel like that solidarity is one way. It does, you know, America's quite an insular country, and I do mm. wonder how much 
American, you know, black Americans, for instance, know, you know, about Mark Duggan or Sandra Bland or, you know, or any, any of the, any of the campaigns that, or Smiley Culture, any of the, any of the campaigns that we've had over here, right? I kind of feel like we're sometimes a little bit on our own when it comes to, um, you know, black British deaths. But, um, I think you, uh, I believe you sort of teach by, teach by example. I really believe that, you know, just because they're not being that united with us, I think we should, I think, I, I still think you show solidarity. Because, you know, I watch, uh, you know, I watch those YouTube videos of, of just hideous, hideous things happening in America. And, yeah, and I'm, I'm thankful that the British police don't have guns, to be honest. Yeah. But also, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, our mentality here is slightly different, which I'm also thankful of. But I do, I, I feel, I feel like it's happening to America member of my family I feel very um, and I know it's not just me I'm, I'm, I, I know a lot of black people I here feel very touched and moved by the stuff that they're seeing happening in, in, in the United States and you know let's face it the United States, when it comes to the drive for equality the United States and South Africa and various places are quite iconic you know the civil rights movement in, in, in the US is something that, that almost every black person grows up knowing about you know you know about Martin, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party, and before that, you know about Harriet Tubman, and these are these are things that that, that black people grow up, you know, almost as part of the, the, you know they're hardwired to know this stuff. So, so we can't help but feel connected to 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 the Black Lives Matter movement, which I, I think is the most important political mu- movement of, of, of this century so far. It's 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 going to be the stuff that gets taught in schools in a hundred years' time. It's it's phenomenal. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 